Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to another episode of Chatting with the Bondman, the podcast where the Bondman chats with awesome people. And today we are in for a real treat because here I have a uh, a well-known uh, voiceover artist in the East Coast. His name is Chuck McKibben, and he's been in the business now for uh, quite a few decades. And uh, he is here to uh, talk about um, his career because I've been wanting to get into the voiceover business myself. So uh, he's going to give us his story and maybe a little advice. So um, Chuck, welcome. And uh, please give us a brief intro of yourself. Well, thank you very much, Noah. I am a, a veteran of this business, having started in Dayton, Ohio, as a wannabe disc jockey. I was uh, 14 years old when I got on a real radio station, Sunday nights only for about an hour. And then uh, I spent nine years in radio, thinking of myself only as talent. But after those nine years, it became obvious to me I wasn't going to be the world's greatest disc jockey. And that maybe disc jockeys would not even be a thing by now, which they really aren't. <laughs> and so I changed my career path and decided to go to Hollywood. There I was going to do something big. I didn't know what, and I'd never been there. I drove uh, 2,000 miles from Dayton, Ohio to L.A., and I was fortunately befriended by a man who uh, I give great honor to. His name was Rod Tebow. Rod knew everyone in Hollywood. He had a studio at the corner of Hollywood and Vine. He introduced me to Mel Blank, the one and only voice of Bugs Bunny, Porky Pig, Daffy Duck, you name the entire roster of characters from Warner Brothers, and he was the first of all those voices, except for one or two. He initiated the voices, did them through his entire life. He is the man. And I was working there for uh, soon after meeting him. Um, I'll get more into that story. After that, I decided I didn't want to live on the West Coast. I wasn't comfortable there. And I came all the way back east, this time to New York City, where through some college friends of mine, I got involved in broadcast production there, became a voice talent there for the first time in a big way, and spent 30 years, just almost to the day, being a producer, director of uh, radio and TV commercials, both um, national and uh, local New York City, and a pretty busy voiceover guy. Today I teach. I love teaching. I'm very inexpensive as a teacher because I like to work with newcomers who don't have a lot of money. If you have a lot of money, you probably don't need to get into voiceover. So it amazes me what some people charge as teachers. I kind of charge what a little old lady would charge to teach piano to kids. And up until just very recently, I had a website called voiceoverisland.com, which was 20 years old and it was looking a little dated. It is down, I hate to say, and I haven't replaced it with anything more up to date yet. But uh, people can contact me, may I say, through you, if no other way. But also I do have a web, um, well, I have a web presence. I have uh, a couple of videos that people can watch of me being interviewed and so forth. But I'm here to be your guest and to talk about a, a career, therefore, that goes back um, something like almost 50 years talking into microphones for money. And having other people talk into my microphones for their money and being the one who would be in the position to hire them. So I have a lot to tell people as far as how to comport themselves, how to behave, to be a successful voice artist. 
Um, let me start with that. What is the right term? Voice artist, announcer, uh, voice actor. And should we put a hyphen in the middle, voice over and so forth? Well, your high school principal was an announcer when he got on the PA system in the morning and gave announcements, but he was no voice actor. I kind of like the term voice artist because it doesn't involve artistry, but I also like the term voice actor because at your best, you're bringing words to life as an actor should. And so you can call me any of those things. I started as the announcer, but I found out quickly in Hollywood that announcer was kind of a dirty word. You wouldn't introduce yourself. Hi, I'm an announcer. Oh, really? You work at a radio station playing records? No, they're voice actors. And Mel Planck was, I think, unquestionably the greatest voice actor of all time. Certainly IMBD, IMBD says so. They say he's probably the most accomplished actor ever uh, in Hollywood because he did so many characters and he became the characters. You know, uh, he was, and he would tell you, a method actor. He became the character. And he would often say, I'm not doing voices. I'm becoming this character. Watching him at work in the studio, you saw that, that he took on the appearance of the character, their body language, as it were, the facial expressions. So if he's greedy, Daffy Duck, mine, 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 I'm a wealthy miser. You know, he would be Daffy in appearance. I, I don't know how to explain that. You just have to see it. Um, and uh, casual, laid back, super cool, Bugs Bunny. Hey, uh, Doc, I wouldn't do that if I was you. You know, Bugs was so super cool. He made Dean Martin look uptight. And for those of you too young to know Dean Martin, I understand that some of you in your audience, Noah, are very young. I'm going to be tossing out some names here that I hope you'll look up. If you don't know Mel Blanc, um, you don't have a deep enough knowledge of cartoons. I will say that. Uh, and I don't mean to insult anybody, but it's a long time ago that Mel, you know, got into it. 1937, he became employed by Warner Brothers. Um, and his son... Uh, I've just recently, within the last several years, been in touch with his son, uh, Noel, Noel Blank, which means White Christmas. <laughs> There's an inside joke for a British, uh, British for a uh, for a Jewish family <laughs> that his son is White Christmas. Anyway, and they used to laugh about that. Um, I worked with big stars of the day at the Mel Blank studio. He had a broadcast production studio in Hollywood specifically in Beverly Hills, right on Rodeo Drive uh, at uh, Beverly Boulevard. Or, oh, no, Wilshire Boulevard in, Be and, uh, in Beverly Hills, right in the heart of the town. And in fact, uh, Noel Blank walked from his mansion to, uh, to that location or took a bike. He was, was that close. So I worked with all the big stars of the day. Now, I could toss out a few names, which only older people will know, quite frankly. Um, but, uh, you know, Jack Benny, who was a number one comic on radio and TV for 40 years, but forgotten now. Unfortunately, he was a sweet man. Um, but uh, you, you would know Michael Douglas's uh, father, Kirk Douglas, Spartacus himself. Um, more recent, and again, this goes way back, but the host of American Top 40, Casey Kasem. I did 42 voice tracks recording Casey. How I got into the position of being the recording engineer for Mel Blanc is quite a story. 
I wrote a book about it, and that book is called Mel Blank, The Voice of Bugs Bunny, dot, 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 and me. It's on Amazon as a Kindle book that you can download. The Kindle book has pictures and audio. It's actually sort of a textbook format with audio included, and you'll hear Mel Blank's voice demo, which is truly amazing, um, spectacular, as you can imagine. A guy who said, I do a thousand different voices, and he was known as the man of a thousand voices. Um, well, you can imagine what a demo tape you could make from that. So in 1972, that's when I joined the studio. By the end of the 70s, I was in New York. And I was establishing my career there in two areas, freelance voiceover and uh, also as a producer and director of commercials and the occasional corporate video. And that's where the money is. My friends out there who want to be voice actors, please let me tell you that it's not in doing the stuff that you would really love to do. It's doing corporate narration. Uh, you will not be invited unless you're in the right place at the right time to be doing cartoon characters, for instance. And I know that's the great appeal for so many people. I wanna work in Hollywood. I wanna be the next voice of the next big cartoon character. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, I happen to be tight friends with, since 1990, the voice of Porky Pig and also Tweety Bird. And that's Bob Bergen, a tremendous talent and a tremendous teacher. He's got like a two-year waiting list for people to study with him. He only teaches in groups, and he doesn't promise you a job or to get you connected with his agent or anything like that. But you know what? I, I do want to talk on this uh, podcast about the reality of getting hired and big dreams. I Listen, I had the big dream, but it was in a different era when it was a little easier to make it happen. And uh, it's tough today. Everybody with a microphone, as one of my students once said rather rudely, any monkey with a microphone can call himself a voice artist or a voice talent. And that's a shame because they shouldn't. They're not qualified to, to do that. But there's no entry requirement to say I'm a voice artist. You know, you can't go to school for it. <laughs> not really. I mean, you could have a private coach, which I am. But you can't go to a college for that. There's no degree in voice artistry. Even though some colleges teach a kind of BS uh, voiceover course occasionally. Oh, read some commercials. And the teacher who's a wannabe actress herself will tell you, oh, that was wonderful, Bob. Oh, you're so good. You'll get an agent. Well, first of all, forget about getting an agent right now. No, you're not going to get one. They haven't got enough work for the big stars. They haven't got enough work for anybody not in the pandemic. So uh, I just recently read on voiceover prose, which I, I read all the time on Facebook. <clears throat> Pardon me. Someone saying, um, I've got quite a few credentials and I'd like to get a mid-range uh, talent agent. And the person who responded said, forget it. You're not going to get an agent today. They want to only hire. Well, A, they don't hire anybody. They don't have jobs. They point, they point to where the job is that you could go and get if you're good. And they only want, want to represent people who are working. Why would I want to represent you if you're still green? I wouldn't. Uh, I'll be honest. In the fierce competition today, you better, if you want to get into cartoon voice work, you better be on Adult Swim doing crummy things that run at 4 a.m. Um, for very little money, non-union. 
And then you will be expected to join SAG-AFTRA to work for the big guys. And that's costly. That's expensive. It's more open than it was back in the old days. It's easier to get into SAG than it was, but I'm still not saying that it's easy. And you got to have money. There's a lot of hurdles to jump over to get into voiceover work today. The easiest is working from home on the so-called pay-for-play sites like Voice123. And I don't want to say the name of this one, Voices.com, because I'm not a fan of theirs. And I, I would rather not get into why. I remember you telling me that they were yeah. a bunch of crooks. Uh, that's it. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And I would say that, as I'm saying right now, in the public uh, arena, I don't care. Uh, they just stole money from one of my students. They heard that she was complaining about their unfair policies on social media. With that, they said, oh, well, we'll let you quit. Uh, by the way, you've been here three months, so we're, we're dropping you from our service and not giving you your membership back of $395. So, um, yeah, and they never answered my calls. Now, I used to talk to their principals all the time easily because I was the big and almost one and only teacher of voiceover in all of Philadelphia at the time. Having moved there from New York City, having lived in New York for 30 years, and New York's a tough nut, you know, never gets easy to live in New York. So we found a better life, a better quality of life in the great town that I love to death, Philadelphia, suburban Philadelphia, um, where I taught. I began teaching, oh gosh, 20 years ago. I created the VoiceOver Island website then. And um, I've taught hundreds and hundreds, not thousands, but surely many hundreds of people. And some of them have done very, very well. They're in the $100,000 a year category, maybe more. But it's all corporate. It's uh, if you dream of being in the next family guy, you know, whoever dreams that huge new network cartoon show up or working for Pixar and Disney or any of that, boy, oh boy, do you have to you just got to jump through so many hoops. The first of which is live in Southern California for quite a while. Don't be a newcomer. If you just got in town last week, they won't talk to you. They would not take my traveler's checks at Bank of America. When I landed there in town, I said, I want to establish an account. I've just moved here. And they said, oh, what's your permanent address? I said, well, right now I'm in a rooming house. They said, no, we won't take your money. You could be just a transient bum and we won't take your money. I have $500 in traveler's checks. This is how little they trust you when you arrive in Hollywood. It's a town of cheats and liars and crooks. We know who they are, don't we? Some of them are very public and well-known uh, at this point. Thanks That's to, LA for you. Thanks to TMZ and things like that. You know, we know all the dirt. Um, nobody is really hiding the dirt anymore like they once did in hollywood you know there was a big game that you played um your agents and uh, handlers and all that would make sure that your scandals didn't become public there were fixers at the big studios who if you got drunken and you ran into somebody and injured them in a car uh they're going to fix that story so it never sees the light of day and they had ways of doing that that's not the case anymore so i was in hollywood yeah um I love the title of the book, Hello, He Lied, <laughs> because to me, that sums up Hollywood. A person will say hello to you because he wants to get something from you, uh, not for any other reason. 
Otherwise, he'll kind of blow you off and just say, who are you? Oh, uh, do I need to talk to you? No? Okay. So uh, I left Mel Blanc under good conditions to take a different job. But what I found was the minute I didn't work for Mel Blanc, I was a non-entity. And uh, that was so different from New York. The New York attitude is, hey, buddy, you farted in the face of your boss, so you're out of work because he was a jerk and he had to be told he was. Good for you. You need a place to stay. And Hollywood would be like, oh, man, that was a horrible mistake. You shouldn't have done that. Well, have your girl call my girl and we'll do lunch. <laughs> Meaning I'm not talking to you directly anymore and you'll never get through to me anymore. So I found my way back to a more normal place where people are very real. I mean, they're super real in New York. They tell you what they think. And that's good and bad. But they wear it right on their sleeve, you know. Hey, I don't like you. I don't like your looks. Whatever. Hey, forget about it. Forget about it. You know, you don't belong in this neighborhood. I'm walking here. Yeah, right. It's that. It really is that. Fortunately, I didn't um, I didn't get the New York accent after 30 years there. But uh, I can. Put well, I mean, you grew up in Ohio, though, correct? Yeah, right. Right. The That's middle. probably why. Loving TV. I am a child of television. I was born in 1947. You can do the math. I'm going gotcha. to be 75 and less than a month. Gotcha. And um, it's been a great life. I've enjoyed being in this business. It's colorful. Sometimes we're very, very rough, uh, really difficult. In 1993, I went freelance. I had been employed in New York by two different ad agencies on staff as a writer, producer, director, and occasionally voicing for our clients. But in 93, I said, I can do all those independently. And then I won't have a boss that I have to jump hoops through. And uh, it worked. I've been a freelancer now. Here it is, 2022. And I've been a freelancer since 1993. It worked. It worked. But it took some courage. And um, there were scary days. There were scary nights when I'd lay there staring at the ceiling saying, oh, my God, how am I going to pay the rent next week? You know. But that's the life of show business, the business of show. Ask Definitely. me some, ask me a question or two. No, I'm doing all the talking here. Oh, no, no worries. I mean, that's that's what you're here for. <laughs> First of all, before we do uh, move on anymore, did you hear yeah. that Bob Saget just died? Yes, I did. Yeah. That's four celebrities now in a row, starting with Betty White. Yeah. And be honest, uh, you were pretty you must have been pretty sad about Betty White's death, huh? Oh, very, very sad. One of the few decent people in the entire huge world of show business that would never, ever lie to you, would never do anything underhanded in any way. She got all her jobs legitimately, never through favors. It was, um, as you can see from the public reaction, people, people knew what a wonderful human being she was. You know, these other people, uh, it's, um, I don't know them personally. I never met Bob Saget. I don't know much about him. I know that he's not the guy you saw in a comedy on TV. Well, as, yeah. As a comic, I understand he got very raunchy. Oh, yeah. And it cracked me up that a religious site, a religious radio station site, actually bid him farewell very fondly <laughs> because they only knew him from his TV sitcom. Right. Uh, I, I want to write to them and say, guys, did, did you ever see his act? <laughs> he, 
he was yeah. the he was the antithesis of what you guys stand for. Definitely, and and I also remember reading that um, both John Stamos and Bob Saget did not like being on Full House because they thought the writing was just too corny, and they thought. Oh. But now, I mean, here's the thing, though. It was the late 80s, early 90s, mm-hmm. and family shows were the thing back then. Oh, yes. I mean, you had the Cosby show and Full House and Family Matters and so on and so on. The, there had to be something family friendly. But the reason yeah. why Bob Saget stayed on was because his wife just had a baby and uh-huh. he just bought a house. Yes. So, you know, he's got to make that money. Yeah. yeah it's and it's the paycheck. And, and, and not to say, I mean, he did have uh, certain enjoyments, you know, he made friends oh, and whatnot. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. and not to mention on the show, they had lots of cool celebrity guest stars, Frankie Avalon, right. Annette Funicello, the beach boys and so on. And by the way, I just wanted to also say that, um, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, it, it kind of, in a way, bugs me when people say, oh, that's before my time. Well, you know what? I'm 27. <laughs> I, and, and you know what? I, but you know, those most, people. yeah. So all of the things that I watch are all before my time. The Three yeah. Stooges, the yeah. Marx Brothers, oh my God. And all that. I love the Stooges. I, I grew up Hundred watching this. Ponder yeah. this. Guys from the 30s, from the 40s, who can still dominate an evening on cable TV in mm. prime time and blow away the, the ratings of everybody else. These guys were the funniest comics who ever lived, as far as I'm Absolutely. And I loved them because they were funny without being dirty. And, and I, yeah. I, I sound yeah. like, like an old guy when I say this, but I don't like it when there's a bunch of comedies where people are just dropping F-bombs every five seconds. It's too and, easy. Yeah, it's it lazy. is too easy. It's with, lazy. It's lazy, yeah. And uh, with the Stooges, their quote-unquote version of vulgar was you know the slapping and the poking and right. stuff, but that was slapstick right. for you. Right. They they never curse. They they right. they maybe have slipped in the occasional you know uh, risque joke every now oh, and yeah. then. But the one yeah. thing that that actually took him a lot of balls to do was having Mo imitate Adolf Hitler. You know, yes. All he had to do was part his hair to the side and put a black patch on and his that, lip, and then and that and wasn't then, popular with Hollywood at the time. Hollywood didn't want to offend. Hitler. Um, Many studios shied away from any kind of controversy about him. It was amazing that uh, the great dictator was made with um, Charlie Chaplin. That was risky. Um, Yeah, we were trying to appease the guy. Hey, maybe he won't attack America if we're kind to him. You know, uh, it it was a huge mistake, of course. And and, uh, Churchill got it right in saying, you know, a tiger will never change its stripes. He he seems like a real nice guy, but he's taking over Poland, by the way, you know, tomorrow after he signed a a treaty with them saying, I'll never take you over. Right. Um, I go back, you know, to the 1950s in television. Mm -hmm. But let me explain to the audience what TV shows have always been and still are Uh, coming from being a child of TV. I was watching Howdy Doody when there was (laughs) nothing on all day long except a test pattern. And a test tone at about 3.30 in the afternoon for a half hour, there would be slapstick comedy with a guy calling himself Buffalo Bob, sort of a Western themed character, a clown called Clarabelle who shot people in the face with a seltzer bottle (laughs) and a marionette called Howdy Doody. Okay, corn, slapstick, old shtick. It was a monster hit. And talk about merchandising. They made like a billion dollars in merchandising. Absolutely. And a sales vehicle. I ate and drank everything they sold because 
I was convinced Howdy was right. And Buffalo Bob was so sincere when he said, Hostess cupcakes have a surprise inside. You know, I ate two of them every single night after school, but I never found out what the surprise was. Oh, wait a minute. It was the cream filling. Oh, well, I wasn't surprised after the first one. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. Uh, oh, I, I actually tried a, a, a purple cow that was sold on TV. It was Welsh's grape juice with milk. And the purple cow, they tried hard to sell that and America never bought it. But Welsh's grape juice was a big sponsor. But candy and stuff, well, they probably rotted more teeth with the stuff they sold on that show. But it showed the power of TV. People don't realize that TV was very experimental and nobody knew that it was going to succeed as a medium. And now it's kind of seen its heyday come to an end, traditional broadcast TV at least. But throughout this whole time, advertisers have been the tail that wagged the dog. What people need to understand from the advertising point of view is the programs are cheese on the mousetrap. Sure, and you sure. have to pay for the cheese. So let's get some cheese that's a, a very agreeable to everyone. That mom and dad and the two and a half kids can sit and watch in the living room to a big console wooden TV set. You only had one in the whole house. And all of these participants have to like the show or at least not be offended by it. So what kind of a show title would you want? Father Knows Best. Boy, the old man's going to like that show, I bet. And there's no stupid dad there. There's no bumbling idiot dad on that show. How about um, fun cornball shows? One of my favorites, the Beverly Hillbillies. Just good, clean, fun, funny jokes, really well written. Uh, I liked how they poked holes at, at uh, Hollywood names. Like they, they had Ellie, Ellie May, the beautiful uh, Donna Douglas. She's being introduced to movie stars with names like uh, Rock Hardtack, <laughs> which is hilarious. But that was a takeoff on guys with names like Tab Hunter and Rock Hudson, who are real actors who are getting these silly names thanks to their managers and the studio heads. America in the 50s was, let's not offend anybody. You know, you could not show Lucy being pregnant or use the word pregnant on I Love Lucy, the biggest comedy of all time, probably sitcom. And you couldn't say the word pregnant. She was with yeah. child and so forth. What? And a married couple in real life could not sleep in the same bed. So they had separate beds in their bedroom. Wow. How puritanical was that? Yeah. But yeah. you see, the advertisers wouldn't sponsor it if it was anything else. Oh, my God. We can't show two people in a bed. They might be having sex. <laughs> yeah, they're married and it's OK. But, you know, they were worried about selling their products and nothing else. Definitely. When it came when it came to showing black people, just try to find any black people in 1950s, 60s sitcoms or shows in general. It was outrageous that they had a black member of the Star Trek cast. Just outrageous. And that William Shatner kissed her. Oh, my God. Hell's going to boil over. Right. Yeah. Um, now we think how quaint, you know, but at the time, advertisers wanted to pull out of the show because they knew that in the South, it was going to raise hatred. And that's very unfortunate. It was going to raise the race issue and stations wouldn't clear it. Well, if a station on the local level doesn't clear your network show, you don't have much of a network anymore. 
There's about 200 markets in the United States that have to be covered by a network. And uh, you lost much of the deep South if you put on the wonderful Nat King Cole, for instance, one of the great singers of all time, the man who built Capitol Records. They say that that famous Capitol Records Tower in Hollywood is called the tower that Matt built, that Nat built, because he sold so many records so many great records that he alone was like funding Capitol records for a while. And they had other great acts. They had Sinatra. They had the Dean Martin, people like yeah. that. Dino and blue eyes and all the big guys. Oh, all the big ones. But, but they all, you know, bowed to this great black singer. Well, I think TV did some things to help increase racial harmony. Uh, I, I think in the 60s, when they put black rock and roll acts on the Ed Sullivan show and didn't worry about it, he had Motown stars all the time. And he also, to give him credit for being such a straight laced guy, he didn't get bothered by Elvis Presley and the other rockers being on the show. He just asked them to maybe tone down their lyrics a little bit because he knew that mom and dad were watching at eight o'clock on Sunday night with the kids. And he was concerned about his advertisers objecting to uh, Elvis, who uh, real young people wouldn't know that Elvis was outrageous for the time that he shook his hips like uh, a hula dancer and all that. That's very true. You know, uh, he, uh, he said, I'm just doing what comes naturally. And I think that was really true. I don't think that was studied or practiced at all. He was just moved by the rock music. You know, he was yeah, a black yeah. man at heart. He was a black man. And of course, they, they knew that at Sun Records, uh, the gentleman who ran that little record shop. Uh, and a recording studio knew that here's a white guy who sings like a black man and has soul. And of course, America was hungry for soul at that time. Yeah. There's uh, a, there was a black singer that actually uh, in the fifties that sounded a lot like Elvis. his name was Roy Hamilton. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, he yeah. had that. He definitely had that Elvis drawl. I remember hearing that song. Don't let go. Um, uh, I wouldn't stop for a million Don't let go. Exactly. Yeah. And it sounded very Elvisy. Oh yeah. Um, so uh, switching gears a little bit, I wanted yeah. to, I wanted to tell you this story for the longest time since I've been preparing for this. Um, <laughs> okay. This is a really awesome story. So you're familiar with Tom Bergeron, right? Yes. So I. Great host. Great host. Great host. I saw this really awesome story about how when he was 16 years old, living in Massachusetts, he made a phone call to the three stooges. Oh, wow. So, okay. So he was, <clears throat> he was home alone. His parents were out. His sister was at a friend's house and he was thinking as any 16 year old kid would think in <laughs> 1972 or so, I yeah. think I'll call the three stooges from Massachusetts <laughs> to California. Now you remember back in those days, uh, long distance calls cost an arm and a leg. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so he called information and he, uh, and he asked the operator for number for Mo Howard or Larry Fine, cause they were still uh, alive at the time. Right. And the operator said, well, we have several M Howards, but one Larry Fine. And he said, I'll take it. And the entire time his heart was beating like a jackhammer. And he also <laughs> threw in a little joke saying I was completely sober at the time. Uh, uh, yeah. And so, uh, he gets the number for Larry fine and his mother answers and he's going, she's gotta be like 110. It can't be. <laughs> and she goes, Oh no, no, I'm not that Larry fine's mother. We get these calls occasionally. Mm. The Larry fine you're looking for is at the motion picture country oh, home in Woodland right. Hills, California. Oh yes. And so he gets the number calls it switchboard guy answers, Larry fine. Sure. I'll get him. He goes, can't be this easy. Uh, can you call back in about half an hour? Larry's playing poker and he has a good hand. And he's like, oh, okay, <laughs> sure. So when he's waiting the half hour, he's praying, 
please don't come home. Please don't come home. His parents, because <laughs> oh he was afraid. He was afraid his dad was going to chew him out saying, you know, how much a cost to call to California. <laughs> Luckily they were having an awesome night wherever they were. Uh-huh. And, and so he called back in another half hour and Larry, his voice slightly altered because he did was recovering from a stroke yes. at the time, but still very yeah. distinctly him. And I think in about 20 minutes in the conversation, uh, because by the way, he was wonderfully forthcoming and super oh, generous yes. with his time. Yes, he, uh, he said, you want Mo's number? And he goes, yeah, sure. <laughs> and he gives him Mo's home phone number. Oh my he calls God. Mo. He calls Mo's house. His wife answers. I'll get him. Now, Mo sounds like he just walked off the stage. He goes, who is this? Uh, Mr. Howard, I'm a big fan of the student wetting himself at this time. And he goes, who gave me this number? He goes, Larry does. And he goes, Larry. But, um, now, um, so, uh, and thank God his folks were super understanding about it. If yeah. anything, his father was jealous because his father loved. Oh, students. sure. Good. So, um, so As any since, man should. yeah. And so he saved the numbers and he would, wow. um, every now and again, he would call them just to see how they're doing. Oh, that's and nice. so his very first interview was with Mo Howard and Larry Fine. And he had these tape wow. recorders and he would record stuff. And then many years later, when Tom Bergeron uh, was on um, the Howard Stern show uh, promoting a book, mm-hmm. uh, Howard Stern also being a huge Stooges fan, he's like, where yeah. are those tapes? And he said, I, I, I don't know. They're, they're somewhere. So you have to get those tapes. We'll convert <laughs> them to digital and we'll make yeah. it a, like yeah. a half hour special. Yeah. And so he he goes back to his parents' house and he, and he finds the old tapes and they're in oh these boxes. God. The Larry tape suffered a little bit. It was like quarter inch uh-huh. tape, and yeah. but the Mo and, and the and the Larry tape sounding a little dated, but the Mo tape was in perfect shape and sounded like you did it yesterday. Yeah, and uh, and also more to the point, they didn't ask anything from him because usually yeah. when somebody who's not a reporter asked to interview an actor to say, "Hey, my agent will be in touch, kid. You got a fork right. over five hundred bucks." Right. They did right. it for free, and right. and um, and they were they were really nice about it, and. And I thought, man, you know, if only, and also my dad, when he was maybe about 13 or 14, he actually met Larry Fine at a, at an autograph signing. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Larry gave him a picture, of course, this typical stooge picture of Mo and Larry tugging on Curly's oh, ears yeah. and yeah. it's signed, you know, to Brian from Larry. Oh, sweet. And yeah. And uh, again, you know, Larry was old in a wheelchair with his hair slicked back yes. and everything. So that I, I really wanted to tell Thank you that you. story because I know that you climber. appreciate the Stooges. Oh, I sure do. Uh, I saw the broadcast on WNBC Channel, uh, KNBC Channel 4 mm-hmm. in Southern California. They, on a weekend, went out and interviewed Larry. Uh, and he was frail. He was in the wheelchair, living in the old folks actor's home. It was so sad. It brought me to tears to see him like that. What made me delighted was that before before they went um they knew how a new audience of young people had discovered them and loved them so passionately and they played some colleges college dates to huge standing ovations as they so richly deserved and um you know they knew that they had found a whole fresh new audience thanks to tv and afternoon kitty show hosts you know uh putting them on there was a guy in in cincinnati who did comedy shtick in between the stooges and uh, it was sort of a vaudevillian um and that's where i first uh, saw them was on television of course because you couldn't go to a movie theater and see them and so they got a whole new career going unfortunately not terribly lucrative except through merchandise and so forth but they were paid moderately to, 
to be generous to the studios for their brilliance. Hey, it's just fodder. It's just stuff to round out an afternoon in a movie theater. And that's how, getting back to Mel Blanc, that's how cartoons were viewed by Warner Brothers. It's junk. It's it's Pulp Fiction. And it's just to keep the kids in the seats while dad goes to the lobby to get snacks, which is where the money is made by the theater, by the way. They don't make anything on the tickets, hardly. Maybe 10% of the ticket price is what they keep. But they have to bid to get big movies. And when they bid, they realize all the money is going to come from selling refreshments. And that's why it's $18 for a box of popcorn and $20 for a drink. You know, it, it's silly. I've, I've not gone to a theater in ages now. Why would I? Yeah. But, you know, the show business is uh, cruel. Uh, there's no other word for it. it. It's a and radio. I used to call radio the the cruel mistress because radio would make you think, my God, I can make big money just playing records. All I have to do is be a little bit witty and have a good voice. Hi, everybody. It's the Chuck McKibben show here on WYNG 1410 in Dayton, you know, and now we've got the Beatles coming right up. So. Sit back and relax. Well, I found out that a machine could do that. They could track a guy. He could do a six-hour show in 45 minutes, and now the computer will put it all together. Radio is only a shadow of what it was. So to anybody like 18, 20 years old listening, please know radio was once a giant and important medium that made or broke records. All the hits came from radio play and nowhere else. And uh, there was no social media other than the handful of people you went to school with. So it's a very different world now. And at 75, I'm trying to still keep up with it and, you know, keep up with it, all the technology. And I've done so. I'm proud of myself for that. Um, But at the time, you know, you didn't get to know people like I never would have met Bob Bergen without the Internet. There's no way I don't live in Los Angeles. I'm 2,500 miles away on the opposite coast here in Saddlebrook, New Jersey, uh, 11 miles from Manhattan. How would I meet Bob Bergen and ever have a chat with him? Yet I can do that any old time. Hey, Bob, how's it going? You know, he had a sensational year in voiceover, by the way. And uh, if I may, let me talk just a little about getting into voiceover work then. Um, Radio was a starting point for an awful lot of old timers like me, a lot of baby boomers, such as myself. First, they were disc jockeys. Then they saw that radio was falling apart, literally just thanks to corporate ownership um, and deregulation under Reagan and some other bad things that happened. Radio was becoming just uh, crap. So most kids have not heard good radio. They haven't heard brilliant radio, unfortunately. At one time, you know, the guy who narrated um, the Christmas story, Ralphie and his uh, BB gun and all that, what people today don't know is that he was on the radio every night telling stories at big radio stations in New York and back in the Midwest. And uh, there were guys like that, entertainers on radio, who actually had real, genuine, beautiful, wonderful entertainment. So I got in when it was still possible to find that. But I soon began to realize they're going to automate my job. And there are other better disc jockeys who are more aggressive than I am and who will get somewhere. So in 1972, I decided to move to Hollywood without a job waiting for me. I left a girlfriend. I left everyone that I knew, my parents, who were sweethearts. I left everything that I was familiar with to drive 2,000 miles to go to Hollywood. 
I did the exact same thing a couple of years ago. Did I you? actually moved. Yeah, I, I moved to Oregon to go live with my with my sister. Um, yeah, my my um, my home life was a little little uh crazy and so and plus you know i was 25 at the time and i said i'm 25 mm -hmm. still living at home and i'm 27 still living at home but that's another story oh was i 25 mm -hmm. yeah and so i i moved out to oregon the only people i knew in oregon were my sister i have a few cousins who live in oregon yeah. and and uh, that was it and i only lived there for six months because everything fell through thanks to covid and just like you i left my sister i left a girlfriend i left a good job mm -hmm. so and to this day, even though that was two years ago, I still bash myself for it because I thought, you chicken. <laughs> well, don't beat yourself up too much. Um, I have a phrase that one of my students uses all the time, which I think everybody should know if they have any show business desires. Hustle never sleeps. Hustle never sleeps. Hustle never takes a day off. And believe me, as I drove those 2,000 miles out to Hollywood, I kept saying, failure is not an option. Failure cannot be permitted to be an option here. I slept in my car. I slept upright in the front seat because I didn't want anybody to steal it or to steal my every possession that I had in that Plymouth Barracuda. I couldn't have an accident. I would have no money to pay for it. I couldn't be held up in some town getting my car repaired. So I drove very carefully and I drove as many hours a day as I possibly could. And when I finally came into Hollywood, I found a flop house. It was a flea bitten dirt bag, uh, transient hotel. And it's gone now. They tore it down, thankfully. And uh, it had hot and run cold, uh, hot and cold uh, running cockroaches, uh, a bathroom at the end of the hallway that everyone shared. And your air conditioner was an open window. And your uh, food, uh, you could have a hot plate. Now, they shouldn't have permitted that. That could burn the place down. But that's how I lived. And I said, I'm getting a job tomorrow. This first night that I was there, I checked into this absolute dump. And it was, oh, I don't know, $50 a week or something like that. Hollywood, man. But I found out right away, Hollywood Boulevard was a trash heap. It was dangerous. People said, don't walk the street at night. Do not walk on Hollywood Boulevard. Somebody will jump out of a corner, out of an alley and rob you, beat you up, leave you for dead. Nice, huh? Well, it's like 42nd Street was in the 70s. It was a shithole. Yeah. So um, some glamour, huh? That was the yeah, first yeah. shock. But I got a job. Within the week, I was hired by Altophonic Programming to mass produce elevator music tapes. And I was a producer there. I actually transferred phonograph records to tape for people to hear on airplane rides, in uh, elevators, literally, on FM radio stations, the so-called good music FM radio stations of the day. And um, it was a dull job, but it paid more than I was making back in Ohio already. And now I'm working in Hollywood. Well, I got off at three. I came in early and I got off at three. So I said, I still have some daytime hours left. I walked down Hollywood Boulevard. It was all a one-mile walk to get from one end to the other. I lived near the uh, Chinese theater. And uh, if anybody is listening who is anywhere near that, um, I, lived, the Chinese theater. I lived on North Sycamore Street, if any of you care to know. 1776 North Sycamore Street. Still remember that name. Um, near the Magic Castle. So I walked the boulevard looking for work. 
There was no internet back then, no way to know who's hiring, what jobs are here, what businesses are here, other than the yellow pages. But I'm thinking, I'll just knock on doors. And believe it or not, it worked. Altophonic Programming, the day I knocked on the door, said, well, uh, yeah, you're from Ohio. You guys never stay. But tell you what, um, we got a job for you. Transferring music from phono records to uh, tape. So if you can come in tomorrow at 7, you can start. You get 30 minutes off for lunch and you get two 10-minute breaks during the day. Great. $100 a week. Okay. Because I was making bupkis in radio. Seriously. Radio disc jockeys get paid peanuts. Yeah. And, and they that's, still, ex if I may say, that's that's the mm -hmm. reason why in the movie um, American Graffiti, like when when Richard Dreyfus talks to the real mm -hmm. Wolfman Jack and, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you know, he said, uh, why don't you leave? I'm not a young man anymore. I'm right. sitting here sucking on popsicles yep. late hours of the night. But you know <laughs> what? I like it. Yeah. Many jocks stayed with it because they just enjoyed the work and they enjoyed the celebrity status. When the celebrity aspect of it left, there was no no reason to stay, you know, and I had fan clubs back in Dayton. I had a very active fan club, young teeny boppers, you know, high school girls, preteens. And it, it, that was a thrill. That was a thrill. But now, you know, I'm looking at reality and I'm thinking I got to get work. And I didn't come here just for this job. I came here for something bigger. I had set my sights on working for someone famous or a famous studio in one of several capacities, recording engineer at a music studio, I could do that, uh, audio producer in radio TV, maybe doing sound work for a movie studio, uh, which I've done, um, and voiceover. Okay, so uh, I'm looking for something that's big. And here's this angel on earth uh, who's called uh, Rod Tebow. And he had a dump of a studio. Uh, his backstory is pretty amazing. He, he was part of NASA at one point, a brilliant audio engineer, but a terrible businessman. But he had a, a studio at Hollywood and Vine on the third floor. I knock on the door. It's a dump. But he says, hey, uh, come on in. What's your name, young man? I said, uh, McKibben. I'm Chuck McKibben. He said, oh, McKibben, sir. Well, I found out later from his family that when he liked somebody, he gave him a pet name. So right away, I made a good impression on him. And then he said, I know everybody in Hollywood. And son of a gun, he did. I couldn't believe it, but he did. And he said, after a few weeks of being a studio bum with him, uh, tonight, Mel Blank is starting a school of commercials and voice. And I'm invited because I built his studio, which he did. <laughs> and Mel's own studio. Okay, that's pretty cool. He said, so I'm invited, but I could bring you as a guest. You want to come? Well, this poor man, he didn't even have a car anymore because he couldn't drive he was so ill his, his nerves were shot and everything so i said sure i'll take you where is it in westwood okay we'll go and there i was greeted by mel blank and his son noel uh, as i mentioned noel blank is uh, white christmas <laughs> and uh they were very friendly wanted to know about me oh who's this young man with you rod he said oh he gave me such a build-up he's the greatest audio engineer ever come you know from the east coast here to hollywood well, I wasn't, but he said so. And for them, that's that's the word. So they hired me right on the spot. Within three minutes after I met them, I was hired by them. And I ran a tape recorder, an ordinary reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder in Mel Blank's classroom. I did that every Monday night, in addition to working at Autophonic Program. So I'm now making some decent money, and I'm surviving and moved to a better apartment. In fact, move out of the 
flea bag uh, hotel I'm in. And then they liked me. They really, really liked me, as Sally Field said. And uh, it was an invitation to come and be the assistant to the production director, the studio manager, Lee Hansen, a very nice guy, brilliant guy. And that's how I started there. Well, he left to work for American Top 40 and Casey Kasem. Well, that left it wide open for me. I was next in line and suddenly I'm managing my dream job. I'm working for a man I used to idolize as a child just years before. You know, it's like this is I'm 25. 20 years earlier, I was listening to Mel Blanc's records, sitting on the floor with a record player playing. I taught I taught a putty tat and Yosemite Sam. And these other songs that he did on the side at Capitol Records. Now I'm working for this guy who I idolized. Wow, this can't, this is, this is a dream. Uh, it's my dream job, but it is a dream. That's all. This, this is, I'm going to wake up and find none of this is real. But it was very real. Okay. So I'm there for a couple of years and uh, doing well and working with big stars of the day. Um, you know, Jack Benny, who was for 40 years, he was a huge comic on TV and radio before that, but now totally forgotten because the show is never in rerun anymore. Was, the pacing was slow. It looks antiquated today by any standards of today. But uh, that, but uh, I'm very proud to have worked with uh, Michael Douglas's father, Kirk Douglas, Spartacus himself, a major Hollywood icon. And other people of that type who are daily visitors to our studio. So I'm meeting and working with one-on-one. -on -one. Oh, God, big stars. I mean, there I am with um, the, the Twilight Zone's creator and host, Rod Serling. And uh, he's just doing commercials because he's lost all his writing gigs. And now he just needs the money from commercials. And he's got this very distinctive, famous voice. Consider, if you will. You know, and... He's saying to me as he walks in the door, young man, can you do anything to fix my voice? Because I hate the sound of it. I said, Mr. Serling, you've got one of the most famous voices on the planet from your show. What, what do you mean fix it? I, I said, well, we have the best equipment anybody has, and we'll do whatever we can to make you sound great, of course. But Mr. Serling, you're, you're a famous narrator at this point. You're doing National Geographic specials and such. So it's funny, sometimes when you meet the giants, they're thinking, I'm no giant. I'm trying to be a working guy. I'm trying to keep my shit together. And that was the case with Kirk Douglas. He was by then a middle-aged man, no longer the handsome young Hollywood leading man. And he was hurting for work. He, it's the 70s and they were making crummy movies because the movie studios were collapsed. You know, the studio system, MGM musicals, they were gone and so forth. And he said, I never get good scripts anymore. And the only scripts I get are for paunchy middle-aged guys with lots of wrinkles. And they're not even good scripts. I don't want to do these films. And he said to me, do you know what it costs to live in Beverly Hills? My house is paid for, but do you have any idea what the taxes are in my house? Well, I had no idea being 25 and never lived on my own in a house. I said, I, I don't know, but I'm sure it's a lot of money. He said, you better believe it. I want to be a working actor. And he was there to do radio. He was there to do a syndicated radio show, which wouldn't have paid him anything like movies would have. But he needed to keep working. And that's the reality. 
No matter how big you are, and I do want to say this to would-be actors, no matter how big you are as an actor, and you can name the biggest, you're a nobody, you're just a worker, you're an employee to the studio heads. They are the real power. They are the gods. They control everything. And when they say, no, I don't want to hire The Rock anymore, he's played out. Okay, The Rock is done overnight. When they say, Will Smith, oh, God, yeah, his last three movies tanked. Nope. I, and that's not true, of course, about either of these guys. I'm just saying it can happen to them. It's happened to a lot of big stars whose names I could toss out now from the 50s. They were giants on the screen. Nobody in your audience would know. I do endorse, by the way, as all the voice guys who do cartoon work in Hollywood do, I endorse people going and looking at old movies to get voice ideas. One of the best things you can do is copy voices from 1930s and 40s films that are interesting and unique. It's a great way to steal a voice. Uh, I think it was. I do Hank, it all the time. Yeah, I think it was Hank Azaria who said, "Does he do Chief Wiggum on The Simpsons?" Yeah, well, he he does he does a lot of voices on The of Simpsons. Course. He he does, he does he does Chief Wiggum. He does yeah. uh, Apu and right. stuff. And yeah, Chief right. Wiggum. His Chief Wiggum voice was. Edward J. Robinson saying, you knew, you knew, you saw oh, that, I, you absolutely. saw that interview. Right. Yeah. I, I saw a lot of them because I actually imitate the, the way that I got to kind of got noticed was doing Simpson voices. I can imitate the Simpson voices. And Dan Castellaneta said that his Homer voice started out as Walter Matthew and the voice sure got deeper <laughs> down in the throat. Oh, that's good. That's oh, good. stop it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do that to a lot of people. Felix. Yeah, exactly. There, there are times where, where I would, um, uh, parents would have me call their kids to like wish them a happy birthday or something like yeah. that. You know, yeah. it's Homer Simpson or as a pool or something like that. Or, or, um, and, and also, um, as you, uh, said to me earlier, Mickey Mouse, hiya, pal. Yeah. Uh -huh. right. Happy birthday to you. Right. Yeah. And there are many Mickey Mouses. What, what you find out is that Disney hires lots of Mickey Mouse voices to do various projects. You don't think that the real voice of Mickey Mouse does Disney on ice, for instance, or anything like that. No, the, no. These, are the, these are the clones. They're the, the, the cheaply paid clones. And a number of years ago, I think it was as far back as the 80s, when uh, I remember what triggered it. Uh, Paul Winchell, the wonderful voice of Tigger and some other wonderful characters. He was mm -hmm. a ventriloquist too. Paul Winchell and Jerry Mahoney, a great act. Um, don't holla, don't holla, Wayne. Don't holla, don't holla. Oh, hiya, Mr. Winkle. Oh, uh, I ain't going to school, Mr. Winkle. They can't oh, teach me nothing. Knucklehead, they can't teach me anything. Oh, you must be dumb that's too, That's what huh? I said. Yeah, right. That's what I said. They can't teach me nothing. Oh, God, I'm so glad you know him. Because he had gotten so elderly that he couldn't do Tigger very well anymore. So they had to let him go, which just crushed him. I mean, it was so sad. But they realized all the old timers are dying or sounding different now that they're in their 80s and 90s. And we better have backup because we have a franchise here and we got to have the next one in the wings ready Jim to go. Cummings. Yeah. And so that's how that began, that they would make sure that they had more than one of anybody. And I actually saw the, the lead from Disney that said to talent agents, if you have people in your stable who are already in SAG and who can do uh, great imitations of any of our major characters or even minor ones, let us know. And they did this huge talent search to make sure that they had three of everybody.
every character you could name. Well, I didn't participate in that because it was not my dream really to work only as a voice actor. I was, after all, successful in New York City as a producer and director with ad agencies, a pretty steady job as long as your commercials kept selling product. But as I say to you, the commercials are why TV and radio exist. Uh, commercials are in part why the Internet exists. You know, everybody wants to monetize their YouTube video. Well, what that what does that mean? It means you're, you're going to be interrupted by commercials. You're going to do commercials. I see these guys all say, and today's episode is being brought to you by Learning Channel or whatever. And uh, they turn into uh, hucksters. They, they literally, they may be scientists or whatever. I love science videos. But now all of a sudden they're pitchmen. Sure. Join the world. Join the world. Everybody is selling everything to every other person all the time. That's what makes the world go around. And I do believe that. And I believe that commercials play a vital role in the American economy. And you need to sell your product or else your product doesn't get made. And that means lots of people get out of work. We saw that in the crash of 2008. Um, lots of people lost jobs. And you say, oh, those awful car makers. But suddenly those awful car makers weren't selling cars and people were being put out of really good paying jobs. And then what did GM do? They moved everything to Mexico and destroyed cities. I'll never forgive them for that. I mean, they destroyed cities in Michigan, in my hometown, Dayton, Ohio. They absolutely destroyed it, turned into a Rust Belt town overnight. I will never forgive them for doing that. And having no backup plan to support these people who were 40 and 50 year old workers who needed the jobs and could not be retrained to do something else. They weren't going to become computer programmers overnight or something like that. National cash register. They stopped making, you know, metallic cash registers for the world. And all of a sudden they're a computer company. Well, you should have seen how my hometown changed into a ghost town. Um, big business. I support it because commercials have supported me, but it needs to be held to ethical standards. I will say that. And that's why we need some way of enforcing fairness and, and rights of workers. I'm big for the rights of workers. I'm big on union for performers. Check this out. Mel Blanc, um, you know, was paid $15 a week when he started at Warner Brothers, 15 a week to do everything that he was famous for. But he was on a weekly paycheck between he and his wife. It was all they could do to keep a roof over their head. But that this was the big opportunity. He came down from Oregon and uh, the big opportunity was to work for Warner Brothers at first for their radio station, KFWB. And it's still on the air. And the WB stands for Warner Brothers. It was it was on the lot actually with the movie studio, but he couldn't get an interview to work for the movie studio. Finally, he does. It's a long story. Um, for what? For 15 stinking dollars a week, which raised up to about 45 a week during the war, World War II. And uh, okay, he goes to Leon Schlesinger, the head of the cartoon unit, Termite Terrace, as many animation fans would know it. And he says, listen, I'm doing five characters in each movie. And you're paying me as one guy. I should be paid as five different actors. Actually, eventually, SAG did write that into their contracts that after the third voice that you do, not the first, but after the third, you would be paid extra for the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. And some actors benefited a lot from that. Certainly, 
ones we've talked about here already. But um, the reality was that he never made more than about $525 a week at Warner Brothers. Shocking, right? But it's yeah. the truth. He made when more. You, when yeah. you mentioned um, uh, about people, you know, uh, becoming, you know, the new voices for cartoons yeah. and stuff. Yeah. That's how Tony Anselmo became the next Donald Duck after Clarence Nash. Yeah. Because as you said, you know, people were getting older and stuff. And, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. and Tony Anselmo, I remember seeing him record his Donald Duck voice for Who Framed Roger Rabbit right yeah. next to Mel when he was doing Daffy Duck. Uh, how about that? Mel didn't like that movie. By the way, it was his finest uh, final film, not finest. He didn't care for it at all. Too manic, he thought, which is kind of my opinion, too. I mean, it's a brilliant, never will happen again kind of event that they made that movie. So complex and everything in the production. But he didn't care for it. I think he would hate Space Jam. By the way, I do. I didn't like the first Space Jam. I don't like the second one. Bob Bergen, incidentally, revealed to me that I'm not really the voice of Porky in this current Space Jam. And everybody, it had been released by agents and such that he was. So he couldn't answer that. He couldn't straighten that out until the movie was out and being talked about. But um, there's a young guy who I've heard, I don't remember his name, who's got a fabulous Porky Pig voice. And he's a nice young man. He's a family man. I mean, he's the kind of guy you'd want to hire. And I don't begrudge him that. Listen, every voice belongs to the studio. They can replace anybody anytime. If they wanted to, they could turn Bugs Bunny into a hipster doofus with a completely different voice that wouldn't sound anything like Bugs at all. And they could just decide, we're doing this. Bugs is old and tired and worn out, and we're just doing this. That's the reality. They own the characters. They have all the intellectual property rights to the characters. So Mel, when he would appear on Letterman or other shows like that, when he got to do the voices on TV, it was with their permission because it didn't really hurt him at all. I mean, it was publicity for the films and doing the voices um, was just, you know, great. OK, go ahead. Show off. But um, he had a routine. He, he had every word practiced to the exact word when he was asked, well, how did you come up with the voice of Bugs Bunny? And uh, if you watch his appearance on Letterman, you'll hear the entire spiel. I must have heard him. I must have heard him do that very same speech a hundred times in two years. Seriously, because he would tell his classes that everything was told exactly the same. But I got to call him out on one thing. Sometimes he was called by by one of the writers in, in Hollywood who wrote cartoons. Um, Hollywood's uh, greatest voice talent and worst historian <laughs> because sometimes he would make it up a little bit for instance he said oh how did i come up with the voice of porky pig yeah he said he went to a he, i'm pretty sure he was joking when he said i went to the pig farm and waddled around with the pigs only to be authentic and when i came home they kicked me out and said go home and take a bath he said it with such a straight face it didn't sound like a joke when it came out of him yeah I'm and sure. uh, and then when he said when I did want to come back yeah. so when he pick a talk he talk with a grunt oink, 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 eep, 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 eep. but I think the stutter also came from cuz he said that Porky was a timid little character and when right. people are timid they stutter right well the reality was they had a real life stutterer doing the voice before that's where the voice was invented it wasn't invented by Mel he just took it over because this stutterer could not control it He'd go on and they're recording on sound film, which just like any kind of film had to be developed 
and processed. And then it was costly, just like film always is with sprocket holes in it. And so this fella whose name escapes me at the moment, but it's not important. He was a radio actor who had a real life stutter and it was funny. Okay. So let's use the funny guy for a pig. He didn't dream up the voice at all, nor did he name Bugs Bunny. It was actually named after Bugs Hardaway, an animator who gave him the look that we associate with the real Bugs Bunny today. It was Bugs's bunny, possessive, Bugs's bunny, meaning Bugs Hardaway's bunny. Well, that stuck. And Mel would claim to have been there at the moment when the name came up, right? Uh, he, uh, but the, the one about the pigs, he was a Jewish man, for heaven's sakes. He wouldn't have waddled in the mud with pigs for, what, two weeks? Hey, wait a minute. We had pig sound effects at Warner Brothers, didn't we? I mean, couldn't we just hear those and get an idea? But of course, he just literally stepped in for this other actor. But to Mel, um, it's a minor white lie, I guess you could say, a, a kind of a minor claim among all the others. But you can't take it away from him. I mean, you can't take away from him his brilliance, his genius. But I want to uh, have everybody know Mel is not a happy man. In 1961, he had this dreadful auto accident, in which literally every bone in his body was broken on uh, Dead Man's Curve, the famous Dead Man's Curve that uh, the pop duo Jan, uh, Dan and who were they? Oh, Jan and Dean. Jan and Dean uh, sang a top 40 song called Dead Man's Curve. And it was actually that intersection where he was head on rammed by another car and nearly died. In fact, some newspapers said voice of Bugs Bunny is killed in auto accident. So he lays in a coma for a long time, a month or more. And the doc says, well, he's fine. He, he's, he's got all his vitals are okay, but he just doesn't want to come out of the coma. So the doctor noticed and, and Noel there to visit his dad said, look, there's a Bugs Bunny movie on the TV set here in his room. And, um, got an idea. Let's approach him with a, a carrot from the commissary and say, hey, Bugs, listen, the kids miss you. Where have you been? Are you in there, Bugs? We got a carrot for you. And he said weakly, e I'm right here, Doc. And that's the true story. Now, I believe what was happening was that like this character, Sybil, a real life woman who had 16 multiple personalities inside of her, that these characters had a life inside of him. They were real to him. He said, I am Bugs Bunny. I don't play Bugs Bunny. I am Bugs. And as a method actor, I think he really believed that. That was his alter ego, but something even more than that. So Bugs was not hurt. Here's my point. Bugs was indestructible. Bugs could be falling to the ground in an airplane in World War II, and he stomps on the brakes at the last moment, and it screeches to a halt in midair. Okay. Look, out of gas. Yeah, because you can do that in a cartoon. So Bugs can't be destroyed. He can't get sick. He can't be hurt. And he's certainly immortal. All the characters are. Look at Daffy. Daffy gets shot in the face with a shotgun. And all that happens is his, his beak spins. Really? Incidentally, big secret. I happen to be watching Family Guy one night and I see... <laughs> I see Peter remembering that episode. <laughs> Remember, uh, uh, he, he got his head shot clean off by Yelmer. And of course, they show that. And blood comes spurting out of Daffy's body. The voice was done by Noel Blank. So I'm talking to Noel. He was in the credits briefly. I talked to Noel. I said, didn't you do that terrible 
awful, you know, memory of Peter Griffin's that, uh, you know, he sh- really did shoot and kill Daffy Duck. He says, yeah, kind of. <laughs> Yeah, and that's what's funny. That's what my dad and I love to watch uh, the old rabbit season cartoons. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and especially every time, um, you know, Bugs would trick Elmer to shoot Daffy, his beak will either be on the other side or it would come clean off or his face would be mangled. Yeah. And then after after a couple of shots, he'd just go up to Bugs and say, you're despicable. You're despicable. Yeah. Yes. When when I recorded that, I'll tell you a couple of secrets. When I recorded Daffy and also Tweety, I sped them up. I actually decreased the recording speed on audio tape by 7% for Daffy. So, see, this little black duck is getting a tail feather out of here would become, see, this little black duck is getting a tail feather out of here. 7%. Yes, and I, and I noticed that. I noticed that when Mel yep. was doing a yep. Daffy Duck yep. for uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, it, right. was, it didn't sound like Daffy Duck. Right. It sounded like Mel trying to sound like Daffy Duck. Because they probably were not told, hey, I speed that character up. It was a little trick in the studio. And Tweety, he couldn't hit those high notes as Tweety without help. So that was about a 10% rise. And we had a, we had a machine adjusted for variable speed, our master recording machine. And we could do that. But keep in mind with tape, it not only raised the pitch, but also the speed by that same percentage. So it got tighter, higher, and more cartoon-like all at once by doing it on tape. Uh, they probably didn't know that when they produced Roger Rabbit. But yeah, he, he often in real life, as an older man who had smoked since the age of nine, he struggled very, very hard to do Tweety in person. And, and Yosemite Sam. And once he did Yosemite Sam, that was it for the day. Mm. That hurt his throat as much as you can imagine it did. He, he, go, he goes home after that. Now, he would show up at the office for two or three hours a day, come in from his home in Pacific Palisades, and then um, sign autographs, do some paperwork for the company. He was, after all, the CEO of Mel Blanc Audio Media. And that was a responsibility to get about a dozen people, including me, paid every week. But actually, the company hemorrhaged money. It was not a big success. And uh, I found out many years later uh, from Noel, he said, you thought I was rich? I moved into Bobby Darren's. Now, he was a pop star of the love Bobby Darren beyond the sea. Oh, yeah. Bobby Darren. That's someone people should know. A huge star of his day. Um, who had kind of a fatalistic attitude that he would die young, which he did. Uh, anyway, Bobby Darren had a mansion in Beverly Hills. He sold it a, as a fire sale. It was $165,000. That same house would go for $8 million today. And he was trying to get rid of it. And he knew personally Noel Blank and said, hey, you, you want to buy my house? It's big. It's got a 50 by 50 foot living room. It's got a tennis court out back. It's huge, two stories. And Noel said, I don't have that kind of money. For Beverly Hills home. And he said, well, how much do you have? And Noel tossed out a number and he said, sold, take it over. Because <laughs> I guess the records, the records weren't selling anymore. And you know, one of the things that you find out is that people come into enormous wealth and lose it almost as quickly as they came into it in Hollywood. It's you see that all the time on the, uh, look inside so-and-so's fabulous custom built house that they built just six years ago, which is now for sale for $20 million, right? Why is it for sale? They had it custom made to serve their very specific requirements. Because eh, they're not hot anymore. 
they cooled off. And now they realize I'm going to move into a two bedroom home in Burbank. <laughs> yeah. And, Which, and you know what? You know who actually lives like that is uh, adult film actor Ron Jeremy. He He's rich, but he lives like a hoarder. Did he stay out of jail? I know he was in some big trouble. Uh, yeah, I mean, we won't get into that, but that, that's just that's just what I've heard. But um, but uh, Chuck, we're going to wrap this up um, uh, in here. But I wanted to um, traditionally wrap it up with uh, with my questionnaire by yes, the, um, by the by the actor studio, by my hero, James Lipton. Yes, sir. Uh, Chuck, I ask you, what is your favorite word? Hired. Hmm. Least favorite word? Fired. Of course. What turns you on, incites you, inspires you? Brilliance. A brilliant mm -hmm. mind, a, a brilliant thinker of any type in any field. Well, that's I get me, all over. I get excited by people who have brilliant ideas. Uh, me too. What turns you off? Pretentious uh, snobs. <laughs> me too what sound or noise do you love um warm beautiful soothing music oh absolutely what sound or noise do you hate oh it's pretty easy to come up with almost anything like nails on a blackboard yes noise, absolutely. Noise, just noise you know yeah um and um i'm an audio guy <laughs> yeah. And you can you can actually answer this honestly. What is your favorite curse word? <laughs> I'll give you a good one. Fish farts. Perfect. I like it. I got that one. I got that one from Noel Blank when he wanted to curse, but he didn't really want to be inappropriate. Maybe there were some ladies in the room or something. He'd go, ah, fish farts. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Clever. Okay. What um what profession other than your current would you like to pursue? nothing absolutely nothing i hear you what profession would you absolutely not want to pursue sales like a car oh. salesman a furniture salesman that's the roughest job you could possibly get into i, I agree and, and so, finally yeah. if um if heaven exists what would you like god to say when you arrive at the pearly gates you didn't have to worry so much about it <laughs> nice well chuck thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's actually you're i think you've broken the record of the longest uh, podcast i've ever recorded oh, but you cool. know it was all in good fun thank and you. um and uh so for the uh just a little quick piece of advice for any of the newcomers to showbiz what would you say oh gosh i'll try to sum it up as quickly as i can you're working for somebody higher up than you you're working for a general and all you are to them, no matter how big a star you are or ever become, you're a soldier. You're a private in their army. So make them look good. Help them win the war because that's your job. As an actor, as a performer, you are there to make the person who hired you, who is directing you, who is giving you the money, look like a hero. Uh, this is an ancient reference, but I'll repeat it for you. Um, a kid once wrote to me and said, I don't want to be the lone ranger, the hero. I want to be your Tonto, his, his guy Friday, his source of support. The only guy who supported the lone ranger was a right-hand man. Right man. I hired that guy for a job yeah. because I said, you get it. You understand that I'm the top guy here. You're not. You may build a, a great career 
And this may be one of the stepping stones in it. But for me, this is an end. This is an actual finished product I'm doing. I'm not looking toward anything like becoming the next Steven Spielberg. I like making commercials. It's a useful job. It serves business and business pays well. So for me, as the actor, understand it's not about your fame, your glory. It's all about the guy who hired you. Be his servant, be his best soldier in his war, and you will get promoted. He'll tell others. Word of mouth is terribly important. He'll say to other people, you know who I hired? This Chuck McKibben, man, he came ready for everything. And he had my back 100%. Never asked me stupid questions, never bothered me when he saw that I was really busy. He just, if, if I told him, stand on your mark there, I didn't say why. I didn't say, I don't think that's a good idea. I just said, okay, I'll do that. You know, and that's how people get ahead is being the most agreeable person for the producer ever or a director to work with. And they will advance you without you asking them because they'll tell friends, you got to hire this guy. He's great. You'll be so glad he's on your set, on your show, on your whatever it is. You'll get ahead by hiring him. Very much. If I had to sum it up in just a very short. (laughs) Yeah. Very much agreed. And uh, Chuck, once again, thank you for coming on on the podcast. And I really hope this uh, this goes somewhere. You're most welcome. Uh, people yes. can call me directly. I take calls. I, I pick up my own phone. Yeah. Uh, may I give out my number? You, you certainly may. OK, my cell phone is 215-677-2295. And my email is Philly VO uh, because I loved Philadelphia and it was the voiceover city for me, Philly VO, P H I L L Y V O at Comcast.net. Even though I've moved, I'm now in Northern New Jersey in Bergen County, but uh, my heart belongs to Philly, a great town. And uh, I would love to hear from people. Ask me questions, call me up, say you're a wannabe, you want to get into the voice. I'll be happy to have a nice chat with you. I Absolutely. love helping young people get into this. I really do. Yes, definitely. So that's- and and uh, with that being said, thanks for listening to the podcast. And as always, forget about it. <laughs>